0: Greg Masters reporting for Health Innovation Media with a special post-Health 2.0 series. The Health 2.0 fall gathering, often referred to as the granddaddy of them all, just concluded in Santa Clara for its ninth annual gathering. Noted from the stage as evidence of the Health 2.0 movement writ large, reaching maturity was the one year shy of its decade-long run during which innovators and determined disruptors of legacy healthcare gathered to pitch, collaborate, rank, nurture, and launch apps, platforms, or delivery models that move the needle from volume to value based healthcare. This year was no exception as the agenda was jam packed with interesting titles, sessions, keynotes, pitches, and even deep dives. This session was sponsored by perhaps the granddaddy of legacy trade groups, the American Medical Association whose presence at Hell 2.0 is noted by co-founder and chairman Matt Hope as an indicator, if not validation, that this gathering, if not movement, is here to stay, opining, quote, It's time to grow up and get some of this done, end quote. In this session, James Madera, MD and Executive Vice President slash CEO, and Michael Tutty, PhD, Group Vice President, for professional satisfaction and practice sustainability, interesting title, explore the quote, AppCure, Redefining the Daily Apple Through Technology, End Quote, a session moderated by Scott Mace of Health Leaders. The program description notes, quote, Technology has the power to ease physician workload, create a shared reference between patients and their doctors connect people to the health care they need, and make information flow faster and more accurately. But what are the challenges, and how can physicians integrate and envision the possibilities to create a better patient care environment and deliver better outcomes, end quote. Many of us know and perhaps experience the parallel universe that seems to prevail between the promise of digital health-fueled innovation and the day-to-day experience of mangled health care wrought by previous waves of innovation. So this session got my attention. Perhaps most noteworthy during this session is the announcement of the launch of an innovation center in SOMA, south of market in San Francisco, to be officially debuted during the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference this January 2016. For more information, search Health 2047, because they're hiring. Following the introduction into the session and welcoming remarks of Scott Mace, as moderator, we pick up the panel during Michael Tutty's discussion of a caveat emptor principle, warning that you may not be getting what you think you're getting in certain mHealth apps. So enjoy.
1: Yeah. All <laughs> right? And that's on the App Store. Fortunately, I think someone's starting to police this, and they're putting the word "prank" after these apps. So, um, but reading the reviews is quite quite funny of the people who downloaded that app uh, as well and realized that it was a prank and enter- for entertainment and joy, as it says in the description. Um, getting a fake blood pressure reading gives you a lot of joy. Um, I guess if your blood pressure was high and it gave you a good reading, that might give you a lot of joy. But we have this environment where there's all these apps and all these things and patients are using them to bring the data, but the physicians aren't sure if the data is valid. And then what we have today is at the beginning, a lot of these tools and apps were about collecting information, Fitbit. I had one. I don't wear it anymore. I collected steps. But it was not able to turn that information into actionable and usable information for me. And I think that's where we're really seeing an advancement right now in technologies. Not just collecting the information. This is my heart rate. This is my steps. This is my uh, EKG, but how do you turn that into actual information that I can be used to a physician? I think there's still a divide that we need to close between these two, these two worlds, digital health and digital medicine.
2: James, how are physicians in America hoping to shape or lead the way in terms of how data is integrated into practice in a way that foster better health outcomes?
3: Well, surprisingly, we, we didn't have a very good baseline on... Uh, physicians in practice, their satisfaction to satisfiers. And so we, uh, in collaboration with Rand Health, uh, did two national studies in multiple markets, multiple modes and types of practices, uh, and to identify you know, what drives uh, physician behaviors uh, in these states. And what we found is that there was an a, uh, aspect of physician behavior in the practice, that the physicians found highly satisfying. And it was face-to-face time with patients. Uh, And the dissatisfiers were all the things that got in the way with that. Uh, Things that were administratively complex. Things that disrupted uh, the flow uh, and the ability of the physicians to spend time uh, with patients. Now, one of the things that is disrupting to patients, as having physician time with patients, is an overly complex inbox. And so it's not surprising that physicians are not really looking for uh, additional floods of pieces of data. And so one of the uh, aspects that uh, we are paying attention to is how does one get actionable data? And as Michael said, it's, it's really uh, uh, you know, digital medicine that has an a evidence base and is actionable as opposed to these other things that are digital health, which is the broad swath. Um, maybe it's helpful to the individual, but it's probably uh, not part, that deserve to be part of their uh, formalized medical record. Uh, and how does one get a actionable parsimonious set of clinical data that can incorporate aspects that are from the patient as well as aspects that uh, are from the clinic. And this is an area that we're working on currently and I think will be very important to make these data usable. We we find, for example, even in diabetes prevention programs uh, that are external to the clinic and in a community center that the ability for patients to engage that uh, is highly amplified if the physician recommends it, thus indicating to the patient this is an important thing to do uh, in their health care. So organizing that is going to be uh, the mountain to be climbed.
2: Okay. Michael, what can physicians do to help their patients make sense of the vast amount of information available to them? This is, this is the challenge
1: for physicians as I was describing. Physicians are going to need to now get current, not only on the, the new treatment options, the genomics, but the, the, all these technologies that are out there, all these sort of consumable and wearable apps, and be able to um, recommend those that are, that are appropriate, that are accurate, um, and that potentially can tie back, if appropriate, back to the electronic health record. I mean, just even being here uh, for the last couple of days, it's like drinking from a fire hose of all the new technologies, all the demonstrations, all the great work and innovation that's happening. But as you can imagine for a physician every day, seeing patients all day long, dealing with the difficulties of electronic health records we've heard time and time again from various presentations over the uh, last couple of days, you know, trying to keep current on this body of knowledge is really gonna be difficult. But I think that's, uh, that's a task that physicians are gonna have to get involved in and really start to meld uh, the differences between this digital health and digital uh, medicine and, and really starting to look more into that health and wellness space because it's so important to, uh, to manage chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension, um, but I think we're not there yet. I think we've got a lot of work to make sure physicians are well-informed, um, but I think there's still a lot of growth in the industry as well.
2: Question for you both. Are you managing your own health in any way with digital technology such as apps? And if so, any interesting findings you'd like to reveal?
4: <laughs>
2: well, I do use my smartphone for steps
3: and uh, distance. Um, problem is I don't always have it with me. <laughs> uh, but certainly in areas where I you know, I have some time, and it's a Sunday afternoon, that kind of thing, uh, one can measure and try to develop a, a habit. Uh, other than that, I have to say, and this is not through uh, an app or a device, but really through a cuff, uh, measure blood pressure. I mean, that is a recognizable important biomarker Uh, for health, disease, early death, um, and it's actually uh, not measured correctly uh, often. So the correct way of measuring a blood pressure is uh, not through your smart watch, which uh, has in its small print uh, for entertainment only, uh, and uh, is not validated but to get something that is validated and those are largely not the apps now but uh, things that are like old-fashioned cuffs and the way one measures a blood pressure accurately is that you haven't had alcohol or caffeine or tobacco for at least 30 minutes you've been relaxing for at least five minutes Uh, you have not finished exercise right before your legs are not crossed now your bladder is empty, you're sitting in comfortably in a chair for those at least five minutes with your feet flat on the floor. Uh, your arm is bare, uh, the cuff is at heart level, and you measure blood pressure. Now how many of you have ever had a blood pressure measured like that? And all of those things, each one of those individually will distort um, the reading. So one of the things that's probably most useful in terms of this very important measure is, unfortunately, not from apps right now, but from measuring your blood pressure, you know, three times in the morning, three times at night over a week, uh, averaging that and taking that into your physician.
1: I, Scott, I've I've used a number of them. I, I've, I have a Fitbit. I stopped wearing it. I've, I've tracked my food intake over time. I, I know I lead a sedentary lifestyle and I eat horribly. Um, so that's made me feel better, um, but it hasn't really incentivized me to change my uh, motion or my diet, so I, I think uh, we really need to move to the next generation of just from tracking information to actionable information, uh, and hopefully I'll uh, get off the couch more in the second generation.
3: I'll just add these things are, are kind of difficult to do. so as an experiment um, at our board meetings, I substituted in the afternoon instead of cookies we had. And nuts like they do here and then I went um, to in I went to the third rail I, I took away bacon for breakfast <laughs> this did not go well <laughs> uh, and finally I had to add
2: the bacon back before a resolution of the board was made <laughs> you don't mess with bacon um, we talked about gadgets but what about your own personal health records? Are you dashboarding your own health as reported out by your own physician's own electronic health record on you? Have either of you taken control of your own data? Yeah, I have a spreadsheet where you know I
3: have um, all measurements aligned, and then within the last two years, my provider uh, allows my has the health record and my electronic health record um, all reports of tests radiographs and whatnot online uh, that I can access in a private way. So I have access both by the records I have kept for some time uh, as well as now my formal electronic health record.
2: Okay. There's been a notable shift in the AMA uh, recently to serve as a major player on, on two fronts. One is innovation in healthcare uh, overall and um, technology. And can can you expound on on those, James? Yes, so uh,
3: we kicked off about three years ago the first uh, long-term strategic plan um, in the history of the organization, which is quite old, uh, founded in 1847. And there are three mission pillars in that plan. Uh, The first is to change medical education, restructure medical education in medical school. Uh, it's not been restructured for 100 years. The curriculum is always updated, but the structure is the same. Uh, elements that are important in that are you know moving to a competency measured curriculum, team based, quality focused, uh, you know, and patient centered uh, outpatient focused on the emerging health crisis and chronic disease, uh, which is going to get, um, be more and more of our disease burden in the next quarter century. So those kinds of things in education. And improving health outcomes, the second uh, pillar, working as Michael mentioned with pre-diabetes and hypertension that's untreated using uh, partners that are classical like uh, our partnership with the Centers for Disease Control or non-classical like our partnership uh, with the YMCA's of America as a community site for diabetes prevention programs. And then thirdly, the physician satisfaction practice sustainability work that um, Michael touched on. Now, all of this work has generated a series of really discrete and precisely defined problems. Uh, So we have to approach those in an innovative way. And for that reason, we're developing an innovative innovation ecosystem. Uh, There are various parts of that innovation ecosystem. Uh, Michael can best talk about a digital platform steps forward uh, for physicians offices that allow them to um, a- adapt and incorporate lean techniques and other approaches uh, we're also working with uh, incubators such as matter in Chicago a uh, matter of 105 startups now and we try to see the workflow and the granular knowledge of what's needed at the origin of the concept that the entrepreneur has uh, so we don't end up getting thrown over the transom into the healthcare system something that's 10 or 20 degrees uh, off uh, what would be a optimal uh, solution uh, and thirdly uh, as part of this ecosystem uh, we're opening a uh, innovation lab here in the bay area uh, it'll be south of the market in san francisco it will be launched in and around the JP Morgan January conference. Uh, we have space, we've opened doors, we have initial hires, uh, and there will be a pre-venture rapid prototyping lab. Uh, so this is a, um, uh, a new approach for us, but an approach that's dictated by the fact that these three pillars have produced uh, a lot of problems and need solutions.
2: Will MA... Um, and you know you don't know this question is coming what way be thinking about putting a good housekeeping seal of approval on apps for patients is that something that this could lead to well
3: uh, yeah our role has uh, largely been not uh, picking winners and losers so to speak but establishing principles so one principle that Michael already articulated is that um, you know you, you know an app to be usable from our point of view Uh, should have a deep evidence base supporting uh, the readouts, the kind of information that it provides, Uh, and then there should also be work around how that information now touches uh, the medical system and the provider and adds the continuity of care in an acceptable way. So we um, uh, like to establish principles rather than uh, putting seals on things.
2: Okay. Uh, Kind of a related uh, issue. I was uh, listening, as I do in my copious spare time, to one of the Health IT Policy (laughs) Committee meetings in Washington, and uh, one of the people in that meeting mentioned that they had discovered a mobile app in the App Store that talks about the providers the mobile app works with. He didn't name the app, but he named some of the providers who were name-checked. One of them was Palo Alto Medical Foundation, not far from here. But part of the business model of that app in the app store is to sell data to pharmaceutical companies. And I'm wondering if one of your principles has to do with who pays for the app and what happens to the data in the app. And, you know, I could see different solutions to that where maybe in one case it'll be the patient agrees to give up some privacy for low cost of the app or maybe to help with the outcomes because they have a serious disease. Whereas other people more concerned about the privacy, you might want to ask them to pay some money for that app to uh, support the app, because otherwise, how are you going to pay for the app? And this is a whole issue about apps. Any any thoughts?
3: I'm going to ask Michael to comment, but I'll uh, preface the remarks by saying that one of the founding principles of the AMA in 1847 was the development of the first clinical code of medical ethics, which is updated each year, uh, is being extensively revised right now, and it's this large code uh, that we refer to um, and build on each year uh, around problems such as this, issues such as this.
1: Yes. So uh, we're still working through the sort of the guidelines, uh, the guardrails that we'd like to see around apps. It's something that we did for electronic health records. That released two years ago we put together a number of experts and put together sort of eight principles that we'd like to see at electronic health records as we're seeing this space adopt uh, in the app world the digital world we're starting to pull that together uh, as well obviously the uh, patient safety uh, is an issue the patient data uh, how this uh, stuff is being used is going to be a clearly uh, a need to have some guardrails about how these new apps are being developed and having guardrails about how data is being used we had some interesting discussions at the plenary session this morning from the folks from ONC about some of the concerns and some of the ways they're using Twitter data even and we all assume that our Twitter feed is pretty um, open to the public you assume but uh, you know all the sort of data we are going to need to create some guidelines and we are in the process of uh, of putting those uh, ideas together.
2: What do you think the physician office of the future looks like? How do you think the AMA is paving the way to uh, make that a reality? so i would say that one of the um,
3: things that we have paid attention to as an organization uh, recently is the topic of telemedicine Um, you know hospitals will probably at some time in the future be restricted to uh, incredibly the incredibly sick Uh, there are even health systems currently when a patient comes into the emergency department Uh, and it's evaluated, it's the type of patient that would have been admitted to a hospital in the the past, and the prescription is written to admit to home. And then home connection of the materials that are needed, the nursing uh, that is needed is set up. So uh, we are working, for example, with the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, who are building uh, a house of the future. And between uh, the uh, museum, uh, Skidmore, owens Merrill, an architectural firm, and our own work, uh, part in collaboration with Matter, uh, we're trying to fashion what a home would look like uh, in the future, because that will be a place where a lot of healthcare uh, resides. Now, the telemedicine to make that a reality has a couple of issues that needs to be worked through. One is a simple sort of payment kind of issues that, you know, what will be permitted uh, by, by payers, uh, where we have policy uh, toward opening that up and are working with the various payers toward that end. Another is that, particularly in rural areas, if someone needs a consultant um, that might be across the state line, uh, how do we handle the licensing? And we're working with the National Association of State Medical Boards to create a fast track licensing for those that have a license in one state um, but probably will be participating from another state in telemedicine uh, kinds of events. And then the third and last thing I'll mention uh, that we're paying a lot of attention to is how to how to keep that very special patient physician contact uh, in this teleworld. That will be uh, something that will be important to do, but for example, you just can consider uh, tools such as Oculus Rift, uh, where particularly if one takes the virtual reality and augments that virtual reality uh, in a way that one can, particularly with a person that you already know have a, a meaningful, personal connection from a fairly large distance.
1: Just just being on that last point, Jim, I mean, the research that we did when we kicked off our work to understand why physicians were dissatisfied with their careers, with RAND, really boiled down to physicians want to spend time with patients. And the things that dissatisfy them are all those things that take away from time with patients. And some of that is technology. Electronic health record takes time away from patients. So I think when we see the office of the future, It'll be very much technology-enabled, but that technology will be seamless in a way that is not visible. It's not going to take away from time with patient, but actually enhance that time. And I think we keep throwing a lot of technology into physician's offices without really understanding how the workflow of physician offices. I was actually talking with a doctor here, about, Hermanu, about we spent a lot of time on technology, but not a lot of workflow and processes and how to improve that. Some of our work through our steps forward. Um, the resources for physicians to really understand how to organize your practice in a more efficient manner so you can spend more time with, with, uh, with your patients. Um, because there are a lot of inefficiencies in just the way we operate in healthcare, how just the operations. So I see technology much more enabled in the practice much more integrated, but in a seamless way that enhances that, that patient-physician relationship. Because that's why we go to the doctor, we we'll want to spend time with our patient, we don't want him or her to have their back to us as they're typing on a keyboard. And I think as we, as we get in that direction, You know, I've talked with physicians and, you know, you start to lose some of that things that you pick up, the subtleties that maybe even technology can't pick up, the way people answer their questions or how they're sitting in their chair and they may have some issues that they don't want to talk about. Or many physicians say that those questions you get when you put your hand on the door handle to walk out, they've always got that one more question, which happens to be the most important question in the entire visit. You know, that's some of the personal connection you get when you have two people. Connecting about their own healthcare and working collaboratively over their own healthcare. And technology needs to embrace that and support that, and not take away from that. And I think that's where we're going to have a really successful office in the future and a better healthcare system for patients and the physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers that care for them.
2: Yeah, it seems like uh, starting from the telemedicine uh, premise, uh, you're not even, maybe, even in an office. I mean, you have uh, telemedicine. You have the models that people like Heal are talking about, where you reinvent the house call. You have care teams where there are health coaches and people who weren't traditionally part of the care system. But these apps seem to, a lot of them, feed into those models rather than trying to overwhelm the physician, the poor physician, with all that information. Thoughts on either one of those? Uh, evolutions of the office, one being, you know, the reinvented house call and the other being sort of the the health health coach care team paradigm.
3: Yeah, I I would say that
2: um, two principles that are going to be very important
3: are organization of the data and connectivity uh, with the health plan. So that if there is a house visit Um, You know, if I had a bit of a fever wanted to see someone, I I would certainly prefer that. Uh, I'm not sure the business model would scale, but that has to be worked out. But the important thing is that that's not a fragment isolated from the rest of the information and the care process, because remember, one of the big movements in, in, in health Uh, that has happened in the last half century is the movement from acute disease burden to chronic disease burden. And that means that we have to have less fragments, less fragment of information and care, uh, and more continuity. And if we look at what's happening in the field of uh, cancer treatment, it appears that there will be less cures than we would like, and, and we will convert those kinds of diseases uh, as we've converted cardiovascular disease into a chronic, manageable state. So we're going to have more chronic disease burden and it's very important that both the care plan is continuous and it's not fragmented, uh, which means these things have to plug in in an organized way to that plan.
1: And and we've got to follow money, I mean money is really what drives where we're headed, this and I think what we're seeing is, is a big shift in reimbursement by large insurance companies, by Medicare, to move for this concept of value-based reimbursement away from fee-for-service. And when you move to a value-based environment, it really promotes team-based care, the larger care team, the large apps, because now you're now you're not just seeing patients and getting reimbursed on a fee-for-service. See a patient, get paid. See a patient, get paid. But now managing your population, your population health. You know, that's We've got public health, we've got individual in this population, you know, for a, for a primary care physician could be their panel of 2,000, 2,500 patients that they're being uh, reimbursed for now by payers who want to know that they're taking care of their health in a larger way. So as we move to this value, it's going to be really an exciting opportunity to promote the larger care team and these other apps that can um, support home-based care or or other things, so that it's not always bring a child in. I mean, any parents who have young kids, as I do, you call the pediatrician, my daughter Audrey, she's not feeling well, the nurse on the phone always says, well, bring her in. Well, of course bring her in. In a free-for-service environment, they're only gonna get paid if I bring her in. But also, you know, there's no current systems to provide care. But in a value-based environment where they may have an app or a tool that allows them to diagnose, treat, and call and prescriptions, it's easier for me. Um, but also in, a, in an environment where they're getting reimbursed that way, the incentives start to align. So I think we are seeing the incentives align that are really going to promote a lot of uh, exciting innovation.
2: We've got about 20 minutes left, and uh, you've got a direct line to the AMA leadership right here, and I think that can answer any question you have except possibly they won't be diagnosing from this stage. Uh, but I'm happy to uh, have anyone use one of the two microphones here, but if not, I will continue to... Yeah, looks like the gentleman is coming to the microphone over here. Oh?
3: Hi, Go um, my name is Arun vili I'm a family physician, and I was actually uh, interested to learn a little bit more about what the, the plan is for the work in uh, San Francisco with the venture group that you're thinking of starting. I mean, what's the, how would that look like? What would the goals be? How would you, you know, foster innovation? Um, would you, you know, how would you bring physicians into that? Or um, you know, how would you build teams to create ideas? Thanks. So um, this is early, early uh, into it. The, the selection criteria for projects um, is just now being defined. The idea is to take uh, interesting ideas and problems that are observed in healthcare and pro- do rapid prototyping uh, using design approaches uh, to get to investable uh, ideas and investable solutions. And so the teams will be mixed teams. Uh, the teams will have engineers, coders, behavioral scientists, uh, uh, and, and, and designers. Um, Thus far, we have a CEO, a chief design, a chief technology officer, uh, and we will uh, build from there. I think that the, from the comments, you can probably guess that it will be heavy on the health services side, uh, heavy on protecting and freeing uh, physician time so they can physicians can interact with patients, and heavy in building uh, systems. Uh, that bring needed information to the point of care at the right
1: time. You know, specifically about how physicians can get involved. in our, in our work at Matter, with the incubator in Chicago, we have we have space there. We're working with, with startups. Every startup we meet with says, "I'd love to get in front of some physicians. I want to, I want to talk with some physicians about my idea." So we've been we've been doing that in sort of a a real world environment, pulling physicians from the Chicago area when we have events to meet with those. But. As we start to expand this, we're really thinking about how we can do this virtually and, and hopefully going to be piloting some ideas for physicians who want to get involved um, with, with, uh, with startups and how startups can get some physician input. So hopefully uh, soon we have, we'll have announced more of those opportunities to connect. Okay, if I, over,
3: just a, a quick add-on. Um, so. If we paint the picture of continuity of care, chronic disease, disease playing out in the community instead of in front of the provider as we move from acute to chronic as the problem, Uh, then I just want to throw out another analysis and you can see where another problem may be. And that is in working with some folks on Wall Street, uh, thinking about the analysts that uh, are in healthcare for the capital markets in the United States. Back the envelope calculations about 500. Uh, about two thirds of them are either in San Francisco, uh, Boston, or New York. And about two thirds of them have uh, advanced degrees. Of those analysts that are MDs, virtually all went into the industry after uh, training. Uh, the ones that didn't actually practice largely practiced and specialties in large academic settings? Do you see the disconnect uh, of the information, uh, the background of the analyst community with what the disease prevalence and burden of the problems of disease actually is? Uh, That's another area uh, where I think we can uh, provide information and the uh, person who, the primary care physician, uh, would need people with that kind of experience
5: yeah. So I'm Sachin, I'm uh, from DocApp, uh, pride creator of uh, Hippocrates. And I'm working with Dr. Jeff Stevenson. So he is in Workers' Comp and another um, UI guy from uh, Apple. So I've looked at about 800 EMRs, sorted out 15 of them, the top 15, been on customer calls, actual customer calls for 10 of them lasting more than an hour or so. And then in the end, we talked to Stevenson, obviously. And in the end, what I've figured out is, I think the EMRs in the sense go up to the 80, 85%, 90% of the thing, but it's the last piece that they cannot implement because the business or whatever way it is done, it does not justify them doing that. And now if you try to switch to another EMR, it's some other, that's not being done. It's never the common 10% done. So, after quite a few months, we figured out that we build a model, which says, the doctor says, this is what my physician and my model should look like. And the EMRs basically connect into them. And he does back and push and forth into that. And the workflow can be changed. So we have looked at scanning of uh, paper. We have looked at transcription. We have looked at workers' comp, building dashboards for them. Very sophisticated dashboards can be dealt private to the physician. What is your your quest? My question is, it's a doable thing, but we need resources. So that people don't need to, the workflow can be improved. They can, the doctors can look at very intently at the patient. The staff also can be done. But we need the connectivity into the EMRs, which is harder to get by. We can build a model which the doctors will like. So this is students and is getting hammered with this.
2: So it's, it's basically a question about how do we get the existing EMRs to interoperate with everybody here is barking for.
1: It's, uh, it's, it's a good question. So you, you you talk about the large EHR vendors, and, um, and you know, switching may not be any better. And, and we've got a lot of, of research that shows practices that switch from product A to product B that struggle and that transition was as difficult or more difficult than they went from paper to the first time they went electronic, Um, so changing products may not necessarily, so there are, as you're talking about ways to have other products that are built onto the electronic health record, but having those open standards there are a number of industry initiatives that are trying to push those up in standards, um, SMART and others that the AMA has representation on. So we are really pushing for that. Um, and we do work with the EHR vendor association and we meet with them, which represents most of the large vendors uh, are represented in there. So we are pushing that and having discussions with individual vendors, but it's uh, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle to, to, to get sort of an industry standard and push that open. But we're, We're both talking with the vendors and some of the industry-wide initiatives that are happening.
2: Uh, Out of respect to the audience, I want to get to the other questions, so thanks for your question. Over here.
4: Hi. Uh, We've been hearing a theme across the the many panels and the many days about the importance of emotional well-being. That was one of the Surgeon General's three pillars, as well as the need for behavioral interventions, um, more than just technology per se. And um, I'm actually trained as a clinician in mental health as well as a computer scientist. So, and I come also from a, a history of family caregiving. So what I'm wondering is, what is the AMA's intentions for actually incorporating more broadly into the medical, the body treatment plans, mental health treatment plans, and actually also acknowledging that the best mental health therapists, in my opinion, are those who actually have an area of specialty, And I would love to see some kind of a matching so that you're not just thrown over the fence to an average, you know, a generic therapist as if they're a primary care physician, but actually even doing specialty matching so that you're actually going for a cure and remission of of mind-body, the mind component of disease, which mind and body are mutually reinforcing. So I'm just wondering what the AMA's plans are in that area.
3: Yeah, well, great question um, given the prevalence of Uh, mental health issues in our society the reason we selected uh, pre-diabetes for example uh, for our work was not that we were focused only on pre-diabetes it was selected as a element of chronic disease that needs care that has to have a community aspect uh, to that as well and so we're looking at that disease to try to pick the lock of how do you how do you deal with a highly prevalent disease in a complex nation where part of the solution probably has to also be a community organizational based, and we're hoping that that model then, uh, when identified, can be applied uh, in a form first. Uh, kind of way to other really important chronic diseases, including uh, mental
1: health. It's uh, the behavioral health issue is very important. I mean, it's also a huge issue for the physician workforce. Mm-hmm. You know, between the three and it's under. You know, it doesn't really get a lot of press, but they, you know, there's some data that says between three and four hundred physicians commit suicide every year. Um, you know, the wellness of our workforce, uh, is also an important issue that, uh, that we're working on take very seriously, uh, as well in the AMA. Thanks.
4: Thank you. Hi, my name is Dominique Kim. I work for Kaiser Permanente, and I just wanted to applaud the AMA's um, development of this innovation center, particularly with a focus on, as you put it, playing into the community, a lot of the socioeconomic and behavioral factors that are truly the determinants often of health. Um, my question is, how do you how do you envision um, partnering with? Um, uh, the bigger and smaller healthcare and health plans so delivery and plan industry players in the Bay Area, obviously Kaiser but also UCF and others how do you I guess um, concretely envision um, you know playing together in this very very potentially rich space for opportunity?
3: So one of the aspects of the AMA historically has been um, a as a powerful convener uh, and so we have uh, we routinely uh, connect with other organizations so for example the in IHO uh, the pre-diabetes work um, the first scaling was done uh, just in the last few months the beginning of that project to scale and that was done in the state of Michigan and we brought together community organizations payers providers uh, employers uh, 40 different of these groups to uh, map out a pathway. so I think you're absolutely right I mean this is a we have a systems problems uh, and we don't behave as a system to give you a, a sense of that uh, two years ago uh, I was working with Rich Oblinstock, my counterpart in the American Hospital Association and we organized a day and a half meeting of the leadership of the boards of the two organizations together in DC and in planning the agenda, said, Rich, why don't, we, why don't we jump off from where the last meeting ended? We couldn't figure out when the last meeting was. And it's been, it had been at least 35 years since the AHA and the AMA had sat down together in a leadership way. So this is the problem. Um, we uh, look forward to working with our, our colleagues uh, in all of these communities. Thank you. I should also say that part of the, part of the reason for this work is we all know the tremendous cost of um, healthcare in this country and, and where we are in the, in the cost curve compared with other countries and OECD countries in particular. One point that's often not made is if you look at the safety net, the health safety net in the OECD countries, we're dead last. Uh, And so we have very little support for the community kind of aspects, mental health that was mentioned. Uh, I doubt that we're going to get more money in the public health system to address this. So we have to look for novel ways of using community organizations that can have sustainable business plans to make up for this difference uh, that we have in the safety net as compared with other OECD countries picked a rich city to put your innovation center in in San Francisco, so thank you.